This is a triplet. And it grooves like anything. Ah, ah, e, ah, ah, e, one, and one, and I like this. I like this part. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman, coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20, the Great River ME1NV, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Thursday afternoon in the moon cabin, folks. And what an appropriate episode to be sending signal through a Great River preamplifier, let me tell you. Today on the show, my guest is the great jazz drummer, composer, band leader, and teacher, Allison Miller. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it may be because you've been reading NPR's Top 50 Albums of 2023 list, which includes Allison's latest record, Rivers in Our Veins. I have been a fan of Allison Miller's music for the last five years or so, ever since I happened to catch her one night at a venue here in Brooklyn called Barbez. Barbez is a very unique place. It's sort of like a cross between an opium den and an Old West saloon. And that was a fitting environment to discover Allison's music, because I had never heard anything like it before. You know, a lot of times when you go see live jazz, you get the familiar ingredients. Swishing cymbals, walking bass, florid bursts of improvisation. But something about it just doesn't feel original. It's jazz-shaped jazz, individual players using the language of jazz to take turns monologuing. But Allison's band wasn't like that. She was playing with a group of musicians she collaborates with a lot, including violinist Jenny Scheinman and pianist Carmen Staff. And they had all the virtuosity and kinetic energy that I love about jazz, But there was also something else, this vibrancy, this bounce, a tone that felt like something only this particular group of people could make together. I got the sense that they were using the language of jazz to talk to each other. So after the show, I bought the record Allison and Jenny were promoting that night, which is called Parlor Game, And from there, I discovered Allison's other bands, Boom Tick Boom and Artemis, which add saxophones and clarinets to Allison's musical conversations. And earlier this year, when Rivers in Our Veins came out, I was intrigued because it features many of the same collaborators Allison's been writing with for years, as well as some new ones, including tap dancers. Rivers in Our Veins is inspired by American waterways, And listening to it captures everything you can imagine about the experience of interacting with a river. From majesty to reflection 
danger. To Serenity. In its review, NPR called Rivers in Our Veins, quote, folk-like and percolating, contemplative and slangy. One of my favorite things about it is that, like all of Allison's records, every moment of it is surprising. And as I learned in my recent conversation with her, that's because Allison is never satisfied with what she's already done. As she puts it in our talk, this music is about motion. Maybe that's why I find her music so moving. So the name of the show is The Midnight Disease. Mm -hmm. And the first question I always like to ask is, if you think of that phrase, what comes to mind? Like if we were to picture Alison Miller in the throes of the midnight disease, What what's the first thing you, you see? I mean, I think it totally varies for me. It could be that I'm listening to a record mm-hmm. and I hear something that inspires me. Um, it honestly could be something my kids say. Mm-hmm. I, I've had times where, or my kids play, like I've had times where my son has just gone over to the piano and just kind of plunked out a chord hmm. and it's like brilliant. And so mm-hmm. I, of course, make them do it again. I record it. And then after they go to sleep, that's when I start to kind of work, work my, my way around that chord. Oh, that's really interesting. So you'll build off of that. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Or sometimes if I'm reading something that inspires me. Let's say it's, it's something Mm non-musical that inspires you. Do you think you could describe, I realize it might be difficult, something you read once that you then gave some sort of sonic expression. I ask that because my understanding is that you generally don't write music with lyrics. Um, Mm. So how does something expressed originally in words find expression musically? The first uh, uh, writer that comes to mind for me is James Baldwin, Mm -hmm. because I've been inspired by his writings Mm -hmm. a lot. Kind of the way that he writes about racism. Mm -hmm. Um, That's always been a big inspiration to me. Mm -hmm. He's so eloquent Mm -hmm. and deep about it, you know, Mm -hmm. in a sense that has, you have this feeling of compassion for all involved, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. with him. You say mistreated or I say mistreated. No. But in the the mind of the person who is doing it, he's not mistreating you. But he's also at the same time calling everybody out, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, and that's inspirational to me. Trying to think about music, like, okay, how can I approach my compositions completely free Mm -hmm. and without boundaries? Mm -hmm. And I do think there's something inherently boundless about drummers composing because we don't always know the rules, Mm -hmm. and so we're not afraid to break them, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, But I'm always trying to push myself further with that, Mm -hmm. you know? That's a a beautiful answer. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really interesting segue to talk about Rivers in Our Veins. One of the things that is fascinating to me about this project is you're writing music that is inspired by 
the idea of rivers. Mm-hmm. And there is this sort of interesting question embedded in the project, which is how do you write a river? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to mind for me was at that time I had a kind of a cork board hanging in my studio mm-hmm. that just has flashcards mm-hmm. of words, rivers, di- different specific rivers. Mm-hmm. And um, the two words that kept coming back to me in the beginning were, uh, you know, fluidity mm-hmm. and flow. Mm. those two words and how do you accomplish that through instrumental music mm-hmm. and how do you give the person the, the listener that feeling that I get when I'm sitting on a riverbank or when I'm in the river you know mm-hmm. and the way I went about it I would sit on the riverbank and kind of watch the the varying flow rates mm-hmm. uh, that are somehow simultaneously happening you know if you look like a cross section of the river they're, the the water is flowing at all of these different mm-hmm. uh, rates, mm-hmm. and it was fascinating to me. So that was like particularly one thing I really tr- was like, how do I mimic that through music? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, if you want me to get into the details of that, I can. I'd, I'd be really interested in that. In particular, I mean, I, I'm imagining a scenario where you're kind of sitting by yourself, just looking at the water. Yeah, and one of the things that I did to try to mimic, or I like to call it biomimicry, to mimic the those different flow rates was I would write almost individual parts, mm-hmm. sometimes a single line, sometimes the piano would have two lines going on at the same time that feel like different meters mm-hmm. just within those the two hands. Mm-hmm. But then somehow to, all together it works, you know? Yeah. But it seems like chaos uh-huh. while it's happening. Right. And it seems like everybody's in a different time signature, but everybody's actually in the same time signature. Uh-huh. And so that was kind of one direct way I tried to mimic those different flow rates. That's fascinating. And would it be fair to assume that you knowing that ultimately in this composition will be playing the drums, mm-hmm. that there is this trust in the fact that there will be an anchor for all these different seeming parts because you know you'll be the one providing the rhythmic backbone. Yes, but I'm often not always the anchor mm. in my music. Mm. Um, I some I think of the bass player Todd as the anchor mm. in in this in a lot of my music that I write, and I don't think about the drums at all when I'm writing. In fact, not at all. That's no. That's actually been the most difficult thing for me as a band leader and composer is to actually try to figure out like, well, what the hell do I do now? I just wrote all this music and I don't even hear drums on them. I hardly ever write with the drums in mind. That is fascinating. I mean, you're making me think of one of my favorite moments on the record. There's a part where you are playing with the piano on the snare. Oh, shipyards. I think it's shipyards, yeah. And it was just occurring to me, I don't hear that very often, particularly in jazz, this sense that the snare drum and the piano are on the same, are are sort of playing the same role in the music. Right. That's sort of a, that was a new sound for me. Right. And for me, that, that piece was kind of conjuring the, the shipyards Mm -hmm. uh, along the James River Mm -hmm. and also the, 
on the record, there's also tap that's almost kind of in it. They're, yeah. At first, they're matched with me and Carmen, the pianist. But then there's once we get into the piece, they break off and we're doing kind of a call and response mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. back and forth with a tap. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, I'm going for the shipyard sounds. So that was kind of my inspiration for, for that piece. Mm-hmm. And Carmen, I'm actually, this is a perfect example of two different things happening at the same time. Carmen is actually the pianist. Her left hand is the repetitive groove. Uh-huh. She's going bump, 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 It's But it's in five, and it's uh-huh. complicated. Uh-huh. But then the hits that she does with me are in her right hand. Uh-huh. And they're completely different than what she's doing with her left hand. But right. her left hand is what's holding the time for everybody. Uh-huh. Because the horn players and Jenny, uh, the violinist, their only instruction was to sound like seagulls and nature sounds around a shipyard. The bass player and the contra-alto bass uh, clarinet player, their only direction was to be kind of in unison and to hold out these long notes kind of like a foghorn. And so you matching Carmen's right hand with your snare playing, Mm -hmm. was that something that you you discovered in rehearsing the music together? I don't know where it came from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's kind of how I approach drumming, too, like... Uh my favorite moments have been when I don't remember what happened at all yeah. on stage, you know, yeah. and I'm not, I'm, the thing in between my ears isn't getting in the way of anything yeah. creative, you yeah. know? So that is one of those instances when I wrote Shipyards, like, I don't know where that idea mm-hmm. idea came from, mm-hmm. but I do know that through experience, I've gotten to the point in my life where instead of pushing that idea away, which I used to do when I was younger, I'd say, oh, that, but that's not that's not legit enough or that's uh-huh. not, uh-huh. that doesn't fit the mold of, of yeah. a, a melody and then solos and a melody, you know, mm-hmm. I've gotten kind of rid of those insecurities and now I just let myself go with that creative flow. I have to say, Allison, you're, you're describing the kind of mental state that it, I have the sense creates one of my favorite things about your music is, which is that it's, it's always, really surprising to me, but I never feel the way I do in some jazz, like I'm being bludgeoned with technique. It always feels like it is coming from a place of discovery rather than a place of conceptual showing off. And yet it is so virtuosic in its expression. And in this moment, as we're talking about this, I'm wondering how much of that comes from the fact that if I'm hearing you right, you compose the songs on the piano. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you sit down at the drums and it's like you're hearing them as a member of the band and having to react to them differently than you conceived of them as a composer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like your, I like the thought you were the bludgeoned by an idea (laughs) because I agree with you. Absolutely. But for me, if it's in a groove, that's the, like Mm -hmm. groove is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Pocket. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always hammering it over the head, on my students' heads. You have to be able to dance to what you're playing. Mm. That is your primary role. Mm-hmm. And the, a big problem with a lot of contemporary jazz being released today is that there, you can't dance to it, you know? Yeah. And it's very heady, which is, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Like, sure. I, and I love, I love avant-garde free jazz. But to me, there's a pulse in that as well. All my favorite yeah. free jazz musicians have an underlying foundation and pulse, you know, it's not just anarchy, Mm -hmm, you know? So, mm -hmm. 
But yeah, I mean, that's important to me. Melody is super important to me. I want to be able to sing mm -hmm. uh, what I write. Yeah. Um, and I want it, I want them to be earworms. Another of my favorite songs of yours is uh, Daughter and Son. Mm. And one of my favorite things about Daughter and Son is that the melody of that song, it's like there's so much happening in the measures mm. that it almost feels like there's going to be too much for that measure. But then at the end of each phrase, you hit the downbeat so hard and so satisfyingly. Mm. And it feels like every time we get there, it's like this arrival. Mm -hmm. um, it's like a whole journey that happens. But it has so much pocket to it. Yeah, and I mean, so, I, I think it's... It's our duty as musicians, especially improvising musicians, to, of course, we want freedom of expression. We want to we want to express ourselves, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we also want. I mean, it's our duty to to write music and to play music that's moving to other people. I mean, mm -hmm. this music is about motion and and mm -hmm. emotion. It's mm -hmm. not just notes on a page. You know, mm -hmm. technique is just a means to expression. That's that's how I see it. Unobtrusively virtuosic. That's that's the way I think of your music. Um, but you should see me when I'm practicing drums. I'm like very <laughs> anal about everything. You know, like I am about virtuosity, but then when I get on stage, mm -hmm. my whole goal of the second half of my life right now is just to forget everything I've ever learned mm. every time I play. Well, your reference to dance makes me want to ask you about the use of tap on the record. this thought as I was listening to it that it is percussive in such, again, a surprising way to my ear. I've, I've never heard tap in jazz music before, but I was having this thought. I know there's a visual component to the Rivers in Our Veins project too, mm -hmm. but as I listen to it, I'm aware that so much of my appreciation of tap dance usually is visual. And so I'm curious what was attractive to you about that sound? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, on the live show, there's even a lot more tap dance. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have as much on the record because I don't want to bludgeon. <laughs> this is like my new favorite word. <laughs> I don't want to bludgeon the listener mm -hmm. with like percussive tap the entire record. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. not what, that's really not what it's about totally. You know, yeah. the tap dance is like, it's really such a vital part of the piece, especially the live piece and kind of bringing in this, more sense of motion, mm -hmm. visual motion, mm -hmm. um, standing for the water, and also the human mm -hmm. side, humanity. So um, that was the original purpose and um, concept behind having dance. But I will say I'm also on a personal mission to bring tap mm -hmm. and jazz back together, like modern jazz mm -hmm. back together, because it used to be a thing in the 30s and 40s. You know, Ellington toured with uh -huh. tap dancers, you uh -huh. know, and somehow... It's totally become this, you know, there's been a the great divorce between tap and jazz and yeah. I'm I'm like on a mission. So I want people to leave the show going, Oh my god, I've never seen a show like that before. Yeah. And I want listeners and I want um, viewers who come to the show to leave the the performance space afterwards now noticing their local waterways. So many of the cities that we live in exist because Mm -hmm. of these grand, beautiful rivers, right? Yeah. We, there was a day and age where we couldn't 
you know, humans couldn't survive without transportation along the rivers and all of these cities were part of that. And then industrialism happened. Mm -hmm. And then they all got almost so polluted that they were, you couldn't even put up your finger in a river, you know, and, and then, you know, and then around in the seventies with the clean water act, now things have started to change, but there's still a lot of issues, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, that's kind of the, the bigger message of the piece local communities and the larger community um we need our rivers to survive just as it, just as the rivers need us to survive mm-hmm. you know and kind of that's where the title comes from like rivers in our veins like mm-hmm. we are the same yep and i think sometimes we think that we are better than all of that and we're not we're just little tiny ants on this planet and but we do a lot of damage you know and yes. if we can um get out of the way and help our rivers then they will help us Plenty more to come with Allison Miller right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. Folks, just a reminder that if there's anything you hear on the show that makes you want to reach out, please do. Midnight at WALT.FM is our email address. And thank you for listening. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I would love to talk to you about your creative origins as a drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard you say once, from the time I could speak, I wanted to play the drums. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I, I used to bang on the, um, you know, like the little breakfast nook yep. mm-hmm. table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I probably drove my mom crazy. I think she makes this up, but mm-hmm. she said when I used to um, direct the choir when she was pregnant with me, because she was a choir director for years, mm-hmm. she said that, she, that I would be kicking to the beat. And I was like, okay. I'm like, <laughs> if I hadn't become a drummer, would she still say that? You know? <laughs> right, 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 right. But, um, but it makes for a good origin it story. It makes a good origin story. Totally. Yeah. And then she, uh, she wouldn't let me start drumming until I learned how to um, play piano. Hmm. So she taught me piano. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have been so drawn to melodies if I hadn't gotten that piano or yes. beginning, you know? And also I, I'm, play classical percussion too. Mm-hmm. I have a classical degree. So I think all of those little inspirations, times in my life kind of make me play in a certain way that I feel like is very melodic. Yes, yeah. I, I would agree. I would agree as, as a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing I heard you say once is, uh, 
and I, you know, I, it's possible that you were being somewhat tongue in cheek, but you, you called the snare drum the greatest invention of our civilization. I did. <laughs> you did. This is in one of the one of the drumming videos you did for Reverb. Um, oh, funny! I don't even remember that. <laughs> well, it's related to what we're talking about because one of the things that you're showing in this video is that drummers don't need to be bound by the notional limitations of snare technique. And so you're talking about how sometimes you'll take a bracelet off and use that oh, yeah. almost like a brush. Um, and you talk at one point about how sometimes you lean low when you're playing and your necklace hits the drums and then you incorporate that. Right. And this culminates in, as I'm sure you remember, you have this tube that you plug into the oh, drum. You're yeah. like breathing through the tube and playing the drums. So when did you give yourself permission to explore the drums in that way? I just think it was a slow process of me getting more comfortable in my own skin mm -hmm. in all ways, mm. you know, mm -hmm. in my, just in life, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the more comfortable I became, the more I'm actually able to tap into my full creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, and the more honest I am with myself and others and who I am as a person, mm -hmm. the more free I feel. Sometimes when I practice, I feel like, oh, am I high? But I'm not because <laughs> I get so into one thing. Like, I'll just be on the floor, Tom. Like, it's almost like I can hear all these different overtones. And mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody else can hear them, but mm -hmm. I can hear them. And I can hear all the tiny changes if you just, mm -hmm. you know, move the tip of the stick over like a m couple millimeters. It mm -hmm. sounds different. I'm curious to go back to this time when you're a kid and you're, you're banging on the breakfast nook table. I know at a certain point, and I don't know if this is the teacher you were referencing, but you started working with, is it Walter Saulb? Mm -hmm. Is that his name? Nice. Um, <laughs> and you, you said or wrote, I can't remember this thing once, you said, I would just hang out at Walt's house, practicing the drums, cursing, drinking, talking shit, and listening to jazz records. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so if you could, uh, and you've also referenced him in, in other conversations as like a, a, somebody who changed your life. Mm -hmm. So what do you feel that meeting him and spending time like this did for your musical sensibility? I'm a true believer that most musicians are fully formed by the time they're 18, you know, hmm. and we are a product of the region that we grew up in. Hmm. You know, it's like when I play with a bass player who's from DC, I know it in a second, hmm. you know, and I'm like, Oh yes, my homie, you know, mm -hmm. like, and we have a connection. It's just like, a, it's like, something in the water the, yep. it's the rhythm it's the time it's the you know it's the vibe you know with Walt specifically from an early age I was just hanging out with older dudes you mm -hmm. know older jazz musicians I mean right. when I was 16 and had my driver's license he just started sending me on his gigs and um <laughs> yeah so every sat not every Saturday but most a lot of Saturdays I would be I would go to the Andrews Air Force Base and I would play okay in the officers club for all the officers uh -huh. and their wives. And I was in a big band with all like professional wow. dudes and me, and uh -huh. I wore a little tux uh -huh. and it was the kind of gig where the, the band leader would just, at the beginning of each set, he would call out the charts, like a number tw 200 from the book, number 10, 15, 19, you know, uh -huh. and we would just sight read them down and they were all like swing dance music mm -hmm. tunes. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was like, that was my, that was school for me, you know, like that yeah. was the biggest lesson. And also that he trusted that I could actually go and sight read this music and not make a fool of, of myself and himself, you know? 
And if I could ask, did he tell you like, okay, Allison, I'm going to start doing this? Or did he just call you one day and say like, hey, can you go in for me? It was no can. It was like, get your, you know, <laughs> get your fat ass off the couch. You're going to do this gig for me. God damn it. Like that was my, Got it. that was Walt, you know, and, <laughs> sure, sure. and also just that culture of him. And mm-hmm. also he had a, a, a weekly rehearsal band mm-hmm. that met in his basement every Tuesday night. So wow. from the age of 12, uh-huh. I was going over there and I became the drummer in that band. Wow. And it was all dudes from like the airmen of no, like all these military, great oh military God, yeah. jazz bands. And they would all come to Walt's because it's like, it was Walt and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it was that love hate thing with Walt, you know, <laughs> he insulted everybody, but uh-huh. everybody came back every Tuesday, you uh-huh. know, uh-huh. and he always had like a couple cases of, of Milwaukee's best, you know, and <laughs> Milwaukee's beast, as we say, and he just drink beer and play. And mm-hmm. he had two, um, arrangers in the band that did all handwritten arrangements. And wow. it was from him that I learned how to play big band and mm-hmm. and learned how to what not to do like he didn't ever let me there were no drum charts he only let me read wow. trumpet charts uh-huh. and he's like don't ever read a goddamn drum chart no one knows how to write a drum chart that's the last thing they think of which wow. is which is true yes because, and which is exactly what you said at the beginning of our conversation that drums are nowhere in your head when you're composing exactly mm-hmm. and also he was the kind of guy like he he read the new york times from the first page to the end every day Mm -hmm. he would sit around his kitchen table and just talk politics and give his opinions about everything and you know he was very present there was never any moment where he was like let's just turn on the tv and zone out it was just conversation Hmm. i think that's where i learned how to actually converse and be with other humans yeah and talk about current issues you know and so it wasn't just music at his house it was like a full broad spectrum of how to be a a, an adult (laughs) as you're saying this i'm i'm going back to my question that i somewhat boneheadedly i suppose asked you at the beginning of like oh well how do you get from like reading james baldwin to expressing these ideas in music and it seems like the seeds of that were planted in some ways yeah absolutely you know to, to like critical thinking you know um seeing the connection between disciplines. I'm having a, a sense as you're describing these, these early lessons mm-hmm. with Walt that you took, that a lesson at his house was many things. It was playing music, but it was also talking politics. It was also talking shit and listening to records <laughs> yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Um, did he have other students who were your age, or do you think it was just that he recognized something in you? No, I think he was very, and I respect this about him, because, you know, he was, you know, he could be a real jerk. Sure. Really offensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he would find the one thing in every single person who came into his contact that would irk them, you know, uh-huh. and he would just dig, you know? Yeah. And he would dig with me, and I put up with it. I admire that he didn't treat me differently mm-hmm. as a young girl. Mm-hmm. He didn't have that many girl students. And, you know, I've seen it now as a professional. Like sometimes at my <clears throat> one of the institutions I teach at, I will have like a young woman who's like a third year student come to me. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, you're, you know, you have all these holes in your playing. What's going on? Like, this is not together. This is not together. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a nice way, I'm not yeah. mean. I'm like trying not to be like Walt, but <laughs> I'm a little bit, as I get older, I'm becoming a little bit more like Walt, but, um, 
you know, I'm like, well, this, these foundational elements in your playing are missing and Mm -hmm. you've, you've been here for three years, what's going on? And I'll say, tell me who you've been studying with. And I, I, it's, I swear it's like some male teachers they're, they don't know how to teach young women. Mm-hmm. It's like they're softer to them. They don't take them as seriously. Mm-hmm. They don't push them as hard. And for me, that really, it's like, that digs deep for me. It upsets yeah. me. Um, it's its like selling so many young young talents short by yeah. not telling them what they need to hear to get better. They're yeah. like, oh, you sound, you sound good. Keep it up. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, she doesn't sound good. Right. She needs this and she needs that. And she needs someone to tell her or they need that. They need this, you know. And um, so I admire that about Walt. You know, he never changed the way he was. And he prepared me for anything. Like, I'm never, no one offends me in this business. (laughs) I mean, I've been offended, but not like what you would think would offend me does not offend me. Yeah. Well, I did want to ask you about that, though, because one of the you've written very movingly about and, and have talked a lot about coming to New York and being, you know, as you've been describing, like already a very experienced jazz player um, and dealing with a lot of very backward patriarchal energy mm-hmm. from the jazz community. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you would be willing to say, like, what that looked like. I mean, I think at first I really had blinders on. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. I don't even think I noticed sexism around me so much because mm-hmm. I was just like, this is what I'm doing, you know. Um, and as I've gotten, you know, more experienced, I now recognize some things that might have happened back in the day that I was like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that was <laughs> that was not cool, you yeah. know. But it could be something as simple as I remember the first, one of the first trips I took to go to the um now defunct International Association of Jazz Educators that used to be a real big convention mm-hmm. and it was a hang, you know, like yeah. so many of the masters would be there. And I remember the first time I went, I was in college, went all the way to LA to Anaheim and went to the convention and I was in the showroom mm-hmm. and I saw like one of my favorite drummers who was like, I'm not going to say who it is, sure. but very famous yeah. young lion, like not that much older than me, but mm-hmm. probably five or six years older, maybe more, mm-hmm. eight years, and but already, you know, super famous jazz mm-hmm. drummer. And also I, that same day, I got to meet Ed Thigpen, who's drummer for who's a drummer for Oscar Peterson, who I greatly admired as well. And the interaction with both of them was was so different. You know, Ed mm-hmm. Thigpen was so sweet, just supportive taught me some brushes, you know, we had like a mini lesson and then I met this other drummer and I was so excited, you know, Mm -hmm. and it became clear very quickly that he was trying to take me up to his hotel room, you know, and Mm -hmm. I was just so deflated at that point, you know, and I was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I just want to talk drums, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. things like that would happen. Mm -hmm. I'd go to jam sessions. This still happens all the time because I've heard young women uh, say this, you go to jam session, you're there for the exact same reason why everybody else is there because you're trying to meet people and get better yeah. and get your ass kicked, basically, mm-hmm. and figure out what you got to work on. And so many times I would play and then someone would say, oh, we got to play together. Can you come do this session or this thing or this gig? And then I would be you know, asked out on a date or something. Yeah. you know. And yeah. I was not, of course, I wasn't interested. In, and it's not like I was 
asexual and not dating, sure. but I was definitely not dating the dudes that yeah. were asking me. <laughs> I definitely had no interest in them. So, yeah. you know, it was kind of like, oh, I just want to make music. You know, certain mm-hmm. things like that would come up. And also I think sometimes the way I, f- sometimes I feel it where I'll play a show or something and someone will come up to be like, I've never heard of you. I can't believe it. You're, you're amazing or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well. That's on you. That's on you. You know what I mean? Like it really like, yeah. you know, I'm sure that I've experienced so much sexism and, and my, my peers have experienced so, so much sexism and misogyny. Sometimes I don't think we even notice it because we've experienced it our whole life. Like we know not, we know nothing else. If anything, I think the only way to truly know is to, if I could actually put myself in a, in a man's body, be a man Uh for like a month Uh and do a bunch of shows and see how, how people react to me differently. Mm -hmm. You know, like be the exact same drummer, yep. everything. Play all the same notes. Same notes, same personality, mm-hmm. but in a man's body. And I wonder, you know, yeah. then I would be able to maybe write a, write a paper about it. Sure. <laughs> I, would, I would love to read it. You know, but uh, people are doing amazing work. I mean, Terry Lynn Carrington's new program, and she made this book um, with 101 new jazz standards. It's mm-hmm. all women and non-binary composers. And mm-hmm. there's some serious work being done out there, which is great, you know. One of the reasons I'm interested in this, I guess, is, you know, you, in my mind, are such an exemplar of the freedom that is inherent in jazz. The the way that this, one of America's few actual original inventions, yeah, contains such boundless possibilities. Mm-hmm. And yet the culture around it can be so boundaried and can have such cloistered thinking when it comes to issues like what you're describing. Yeah, I know. Um, Makes no sense, actually. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so the reason I'm, I'm curious about this is you used the word a moment ago, blinders. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually a word I've, I've heard you use a lot in other interviews. I've heard you say things like, you know, when you were playing with bands of all these older men when you were a kid... I heard you say once that it didn't even occur to you to doubt yourself because you just had to kind of put blinders on and be like, all right, I'm here to play the gig. I have to play the gig. Right, right. I guess what the question in that is like, that strikes me as actually an extremely valuable piece of advice to a young artist, which is to say, like, just don't let in the voice, mm. whether it's inside of you or from other people that is questioning your abilities. Yeah. Um, well, the second you start questioning your yourself it's impossible to make music and be creative mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um yeah i would say that that is some good advice <laughs> because th- we make music because we have to make music it was we were called to make music and we must do it or we will perish <laughs> i mean i really feel that way you know yeah. mm-hmm. and it's not about making money it's not about like ego uh, but there are all these other elements. We're human, so these things come in, and when you start to have success, or you start to you make something that that it shouldn't matter whether people like it or not. But it, in this day and age, it's all about success and mm-hmm. commercialism and capitalism. And so, yes, like especially with social media, it's just horrible. But yeah, so you get this validation. And you're like, oh, people like what I made, yay! You know, but really, it's not about that. You know, mm-hmm. and so. You know, I think having blinders on sometimes can actually really 
you keep all the the voices out, the people mm-hmm. that are trying to come at you. Because also, if you have some some success, other people around you might might not like that, you know? Yeah. Or they might be like, oh, well, you know, she's having success because she's a woman, you know? And who knows? Sure. Who knows sure. what people say? I don't know mm-hmm. what people say. I, I sometimes just keep the blinders, keep the blinders <laughs> on, you know? I mean, I don't want to be ignorant, and I'm not. I'm definitely very sensitive to what's happening around me, mm-hmm. um, especially being in certain projects that I'm in, like being in Artemis, mm-hmm. you wouldn't believe the amount of sexist comments we get. And, really? Oh, it's mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, with all of those players, all the master players in that band, and we still get these ridiculous from comments. From like bookers or from? Bookers, presenters, uh, media, journalists will ask us, mm-hmm. you know, why, why do you want to play, you know, did you choose to play with all women? You know, these just kind of ridiculous questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we answer eloquently. Sure. And uh, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, it, it's everywhere, you know. And um, I, I do think to get to the creative side, you can't let those voices in too much because they will make you second-guess yourself. And Michael Carvin was a really important teacher for me because he – could call out my insecurities in two seconds. Mm. And that's all we did in lessons. We, we'd we work very technical, like snare drum etudes, but we would work the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. And then we would apply them to improvisation. And he, he, I mean, he would say, okay, play this eight bars and then take a solo based off those eight bars. And he could be like, the second I let my ego come in or mm-hmm. I got insecure. He knew exactly when that would happen, you know, and he really got me out of my head and, yeah. and let me and, and helped me get rid of my insecurities and just play music. You know, is he the one who said to you, I'm sorry to be flipping through this, but that name pinged a memory for me. Did, did he say you, you can only become a master by passing it on? Yeah. 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 I think that is one of the most beautiful sentiments I've ever heard expressed yeah that 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 is true mastery and kind of as a closing question something i i always like to ask folks at the end is do you feel like you are driven by wanting to be the best at what you do or do you feel like you are driven by wanting to be able to continue doing what you do Mm. i'm driven by the process Mm. there will never be a best in my eyes, <laughs> like never, I'll never be satisfied or happy. I think most, at least most musicians that I look up to and admire are the same way. I'm never satisfied. Mm-hmm. I might have a brief moment sure. of satisfaction, <laughs> but um, it's the process for me. Like for instance, you know, this Rivers record came out a month ago, I guess a month ago yesterday or something. Um, and I'm already like, okay, I'm looking at my virtual watch. There's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. no watch there. But I'm like, okay, um, I'm ready to go finish mixing that. I have like three other records uh-huh. that I've recorded. And uh-huh. I'm like, I'm ready. It's almost like a drug for me. And yeah. it's the process. Like once I'm done with something, I'm like, ugh, uh-huh. let's, I need something new. I need a new process. Uh-huh. You know? Or like even Rivers, like I'm not 100% satisfied with it. Sure. I'm... I'm I'm changing the live show. I'm adding, I added a dancer and now I'm changing. And now I bought a drone and I'm (laughs) filming my own, I'm doing my own filming for it. And like the last show we did last week had all this new imagery that I, I did, you know, it's hard to not feel satisfaction and to feel like you didn't 
show up to your full potential. But then if you can push past that, instead of running from it, if you can push past it, which is one of my favorite things to do, Mm -hmm. then on the other side of the fence, there's like greatness, you know, or something new that's going to take me to another place, you know? And I'm, I'm obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with change and evolution and growing as a person, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a river. <laughs> Sounds like a river. <laughs> Always moving. <laughs> Sorry. Or that plant. That thing started like a... Oh, my God. It was like it's a gonna foot long. It was a foot high. And look at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I could just stare at that and write an entire piece of music. I look forward to hearing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alison Miller, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Allison Miller for joining me on the show today. This is another one of her tunes, by the way. It's called Valley of the Giants from the album Glitter Wolf. You can find that as well as the new record, Rivers in Our Veins, and all of Allison's music at her website, allisonmiller.com. Special thanks this week to Kevin Calabro. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins, and we'll be back next week with another great conversation. I'm Sam Dingman. Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Talk to you soon, and until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.